Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for the book of Luke. Thank you that we get to see your son be a game changer. And God, we pray that our eyes would be open so that we can see you, our minds would be open so we can understand, and our hearts and hands to respond in a way that brings you glory. So God, we pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up, and we would be drawn deeper into relationship with you and with others. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. One of my friend's churches was in decline. It wasn't one of those things where this was a little blip in the radar. It was month after month. The attendance was shrinking each month. And so we went out for coffee, and I said, talk to me. What's happening? And he goes, Dave, it's not just one or two things. It's, it's a whole bunch of things that are taking place. He said, the, the preaching is hard to understand. The music isn't very good. The board is fighting. The kids pastor just went on stress leave. It's just too much to handle. And then he paused and he smiled a little bit and he said, but you know what's amazing is that God is still working in people's lives. He goes, there's this one woman who comes every single week and she comes early, she finds her seat and she prepares her heart for God. She opens her Bible, she writes notes in her journal while the message is taking place and afterwards she's just smiling at the work God is doing in her life. Her heart is cultivated and ready for what God is going to say to her that day. You know, we come to church for all sorts of different reasons. Maybe you're at Ellerslie because this is the community that you live in. Maybe you're here because um, it's a denomination that you're a part of. Maybe you're here because you love the kids' ministry or the youth ministry or you really like the music or the preaching or you like the passion for discipleship or what the board is doing or the vision that we have moving forward. But outside of very few exceptions, most churches aren't great in all those areas. And so you might be here because you think, man, the kids' ministry at this church is fantastic. Service ain't my jam. Or it's the other. I love the worship service, but I'm not really sure if small groups are my thing. Or I have great relationships in this church, but what about justice or mission or whatever the case might be? And there's this time where God is calling us, wherever we are, whatever's happening in our lives, do we have a heart that's cultivated, ready for God who's at work? I can't remember if my wife and I were dating or if we were engaged, um, but I was working outside of the city. She lived inside the city. And she said, Dave, come um, to one of our Sunday evening services at my church. Now, you need to understand the context. I'm 31 years old, highly introverted, working at a rural conservative church in a small town. My girlfriend is a gorgeous 26-year-old attending a charismatic church in the middle of the city. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to go. But I want to be a good boyfriend. I want to keep this relationship alive. And so I show up. And it's exactly what I expected it to be. There was lots of music. There was engagement. The people were really excited to be there. And I stood there like my dog had died. And I'm thinking, this ain't my jam. And the music went on a little bit longer than I expected it to, and so my body language went from standing up and not impressed to sitting down with my phone and not terribly impressed. I knew the conversation afterwards probably wasn't going to go over for it really well. So a couple days later, we were going around the walk in the neighborhood where she was living at the time, and she said, Dave, my friends at church said to me, that guy's a pastor? that guy's your boyfriend? That's the guy you want to spend the rest of your life with? And they loved her enough to say, is that the man that you really want to be with right now? And I thought, oh, this is it. The relationship's over. It's not going to work. 
But instead, she pursued my heart and she said, Dave, what is it about the music that you don't really like? And I said, growing up, the music was just kind of a time until you got to the message. And she said, but Dave, do you recognize that the music brings us into the throne room of God? Do you recognize that when there's joy and excitement, these people are giving their hearts and their minds and even their bodies to the worship of a great and awesome king? And what could have been the end of our relationship has actually been a defining moment in my walk with Jesus. My girlfriend, now my wife, was pursuing my heart and saying, do you recognize what God is doing here? And how there's different expressions of music and of communion and of relationships and message and so much more. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the eighth chapter of Luke. Luke chapter eight. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew racks in front of you. If you're watching online, you can grab a Bible uh, app on the, uh, the screen right here. If you're new to church, um, the Bible can be a little bit confusing. Uh, there's a table of contents, Old Testament, everything that happens before Jesus, New Testament, the birth and life of Jesus, and, and things following. But here's what we need to know. Luke chapter 8, um, the message has been moving forward. In Luke chapter 6, we have Jesus giving his, uh, his equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Luke, often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. And there's two main ideas in Luke's version of this account. The first is Jesus is saying, here are kingdom values, and they're radically different than the world values. And then he talks about kingdom rules. This is what it means to be a part of what God is doing in this world right now. Then we have Luke chapter 7. We only spent one week on this, and Pastor Joel last week talked about the faith of a centurion. And as you follow along in the rest of chapter 7, you see something interesting take place. It's all about the outcasts. It's a centurion. It's a widow. It's a socially outcast. It's a prostitute. And this whole idea throughout the book of Luke is this one of a great reversal. Where Jesus is coming and he's turning things on its head. And so we arrive at Luke chapter 8, picking up in verse 4, we read this. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he stops talking. And if you're there, you're thinking, that's it? So imagine this scene with me for a moment. If you enjoy to do so, you can close your eyes and follow along. But you've been told by your friends that there's this great rabbi, this incredible teacher. And he's been teaching with power and he's been performing great miracles and that people are wanting to hear him and see him and he's turning the world upside down. And every time you turn around, somebody's talking to you about how great Jesus is and the miracles he's performed. You were talking to one of your friends, and your friend said to you, I was there. A man had leprosy. Jesus touched him, and the leprosy disappeared. You're at a family gathering, and people are talking and having a good time, and your cousin says to you, have you heard about Jesus? He raised a child from the dead. And you go to synagogue and all these Jews are talking and there's a little bit of division going on. Is he the Messiah? Is he really the son of God? Is this the one who is going to come and overthrow the Roman government? And suddenly you hear that in all his ministry around the Sea of Galilee that he is going to come to a town near you. 
and you think this might be our only chance. And so you get together with your family and you pack things up and you make sure that the farm is going to be taken care of and you are going to go a day's journey away and hear what Jesus has to say. And you finally arrive. And when you get there, he gives you a farming illustration. What's he going to do next? Say the big numbers or the chapter numbers, the small numbers or the verse numbers. Jesus, we know how this works. What's going on here? For those of you who enjoy taking notes, he starts off with this, the four types of soil. You see, in our modern society, agriculture is overwhelmed with this idea of let's make as much food as we possibly can. We need the soil, the fertilizers, the herbicides, and the best way to develop the crop so we can maximize our profits. But it's a little bit different when it comes to farming in the first century. In the first century, a farmer would have a bag over the top of his chest and he would take the seed and he would walk around very rhythmically and he'd throw the seed back and forth, put his hand in and throw the seed back and forth. And he was well aware that there would be hard soil and there would be rocky soil and there would be soil that is thorny, but he didn't care about that. It was all part of the day's work. What he was really focused on is the harvest that would one day come. And a harvest back in the first century, would, you would expect about a tenfold harvest. This is what would feed your family for the winter. This would give you enough seed so that you could plant again the next year. If you had a 30 or a 60-fold harvest, well, man, this would be great. It's a bumper crop. It would fill up your barns. You could bless the families around you. Maybe someone who had famine, you could give some of the money to them. But if you had a hundredfold crop, well, that would be an extravagant blessing from God. The description Jesus lays out is commonplace and accurate. People would totally get it. On hard path, of course, the seed is going to get ground into the dirt or birds are going to swoop down and pick it up. On rocky soil, of course, there's not going to be a lot of opportunity for roots to grow deep. And other places, there's going to be thorns. But the good soil, that's what we get. Now, we don't know what time of year Jesus is teaching this. We don't know if there's literally a farmer in the distance casting his seed out as he's talking or if it's just something that everybody would easily understand. What we do need to know is that first century farms are a lot different than farms today. Farms today, you would go on a drive and if you can afford to go on a Sunday afternoon drive, good for you because I've seen the prices at the pump and I ain't driving anywhere, I don't have to. Then there's a little bit of a ditch and then there's a couple yards of space and a fence and another couple yards of space and the crop. But this isn't what it looked like in the first century. When we get this idea of hard soil, perhaps you've been to the corn maze recently or you kind of remember what it looks like and there's the corn stalks and right beside it, it's the hard beaten path. This is how it would have been for a first century farmer. They don't have a lot of land. This isn't a hundred or 500 acres that a farmer today might have. This is this little crop of land that would feed your family and maybe a little bit more. And so seed is naturally going to go over part of um, your land and land on the hard soil. The hard soil is relatively easy to spot. and It's just kind of the cost of doing business. The rocky soil, you can't actually tell. For those of you who have spent much time in farms, um, you know that uh, out in the... Uh, the soil, you're going to have about baseball to um, slightly larger sized rocks, and you can see them easily. But in the first century, this isn't the case. There's not a lot of big rocks. It's a layer of limestone about an inch or two inches um, underneath the soil, and so you don't actually know it's there. You just sow your seed, and you hope that it doesn't become an issue. 
Over the last couple of years, I've been paying for a lawn company to come in and, and work my yard. We have a relatively large backyard, and we don't want our little kids to always be complaining that they're running on thistles and stuff. And last year, we put some money into this, and it was just awful. Like, yes, there was no weeds. That part they did well, but my lawn didn't look good. So my wife and I were talking, because in January, if you call, you get a discount. And so I end up calling the company that does our, our weed control. And I said, look, I, I'm not sure I'm really into it. Can we do anything different? And she said, well, talk to me. How often do you water your lawn? And I was like, oh, three times a week, 15 to 20 minutes. And she said, that's your problem. I said, what do you mean? I thought that's what everyone's supposed to do. And she said, no, if you really want good soil, you got to water your lawn only once a week but for an hour, so it goes deeper into the soil. This is all free of charge, folks. <laughs> and you get a lush green lawn. But if there's rocky soil, if that soil is shallow, there's no place for the roots to grow. And then you have the thorny soil. This soil is neither hard nor shallow and is really quite good at retaining moisture. The problem is the seed is fighting with other tenants. And there's weeds, and you just don't think a little bit of um, thistles that we might have here in Alberta. These weeds in Palestine are on steroids. They grow six feet tall and can just overwhelm your crop. And then we arrive at the good soil. This soil is soft. It can easily be tilled. If it goes deep, it's full of nutrients, absent of weeds. This is the soil all the farmers want. But the people didn't travel all over the countryside to hear Jesus talk about elementary farming techniques. They came because they heard, this is the Messiah. This rabbi is turning things upside down. Now remember, you and I get to hear the interpretation of the parable that's going to happen in just a couple minutes. The original audience didn't. And if you've grown up in church, you're probably quite familiar with this parable. But imagine all you get is these four verses. And whether you look again at your Bibles in front of you or just work with me on this, what stands out to you? And as I was looking at these four verses, I thought there's probably people much smarter than me that can find out what's unique about this passage. As for me, I could only find out one thing. And I thought, where on earth? The, where in the scriptures is this idea of a hundredfold? And so I went to a website where you can type in a word and it tells you how many times it shows up in scripture. And outside of the parable of the sower, do you know how much this shows up? Once. I thought, well, that's interesting. The only usage is way back in Genesis chapter 26, and there's famine going out across the land. Isaac, the son of Abraham, says to himself, well, I guess if we're, there's going to be famine, we got to move. We'll probably have to go down to Egypt, and we'll take our family, and we'll take uh, our livestock with us. And God shows up to Isaac in a dream, and he says, stay where you are, listen to my directions, and plant your crop. Genesis chapter 26, verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And then it ends with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus just drops a tidbit. Are you going to listen? Are you going to think about and reflect on what it means in this parable? Eventually the crowds end up leaving. The disciples have a minute with Jesus. And they're looking at the Son of God. And they're saying, hey, look, Jesus, <laughs> straight up, we have no idea what this parable is about. And Jesus replies in verse 10, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they're in parables, 
so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And that takes us to the second part. What's the purpose of this parable? Now we, um, earlier, uh, thank you, Mo, I forgot to say it, Mo put it on the screen. A parable is a short allegorical story designed to teach a religious principle or a moral lesson. But this is what a parable does. A parable is there designed to make us to think and reflect on the kingdom of God. The purpose of the parable is to make us think and reflect on the kingdom of God. I went to Bible college in Regina, and I had a, a really bright friend. He now has his doctorate in theology, works on a national level for his denomination. Good dude. And I didn't want to embarrass myself, and so I waited until my buddy and I were driving around, just the two of us, and I look at him and I say, okay, Scott, I've got a question. He goes, shoot. And I said, okay, it's a little embarrassing. I have no idea what the parables mean. And he laughed at me. And the first thing that went through my mind was, thanks a lot, jerk. But then he said, Dave, the parables are hard to understand. And I thought, oh, okay, he's not laughing at me. They're meant for us to think and reflect on the kingdom of God. My friends, I am not making this up. I was up until 1 a.m. on Tuesday night, and my room looked like a true crime drama. I had all these signs going all over the place. There's yarn back and forth. I'm circling things, putting notes down. And I think, what does this mean? I thought the parable of the sower was supposed to be one of the simple parables. One of my favorite quotes about Bible reading comes from John Ortberg, and he says this. It's not about getting through the Bible. It's about the Bible getting through you. The purpose of the parables is to think and reflect on the kingdom of God. Bible reading plans are great. And if you say to me, Dave, I read the Bible in a year. Awesome. Did it help you grow closer to God? The gospels are full of different passages. It's not unusual for one chapter to have four or five different stories that take place. Are you rushing through it just to get to work, just to get to family, just to get, drop off your kids at school? Or is there something there you, that you think, I need to know this. I want to study it. I want to reflect on it. I want to grow deeper. Back in the fall, our church went through the book of Ezra. And people inside and outside the church said, Dave, <laughs> Really? Are we actually going through Ezra? But it was fascinating. It was fascinating because it's a book maybe we don't even read that much. We certainly don't talk about it in church much, but we recognize that our lives are so similar to the people in Israel. And God is saying, as you are in captivity, O nation of Israel, I'm going to bring you out of captivity and show you the abundance that I have for you. And we recognize how close Israel's story is to our own story, where we're in captivity and God is saying, let me bring you out and to show you how great and how awesome I am. And over the last four months, have any of you read, and I'm not looking for a show of hands, don't worry. Have any of you read Ezra or Nehemiah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Haggai and thought, oh my goodness, the study on Ezra has opened up my understanding to how the rest of these books come together. In digging deeper and reflecting on God's word, we see the beauty and the majesty of what he has for us. If this interests you and you think, Dave, I just have a $20 Bible from chapters, if you're willing to spend about $45, you can get a good study Bible off of Amazon. I would recommend the NIV or the ESV study Bible. It'll help you understand the scriptures so much more. Back to verse 10. 
Jesus looks at his disciples and says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at that and I go, come on, Jesus. How are we supposed to know what this means if we're not supposed to know what it means? This passage, you'll notice it's in quotation. Some of your Bibles might even have it indented. It means that Jesus is um, referring to a, di a different passage of Scripture. This passage is from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And in the book of Isaiah, God has asked Isaiah to take his message to a people who are refusing to listen to God. But there's going to be hope down the line. As dedicated as Isaiah is, and I mean this man is committed to teaching the word of God. The people want to have nothing to do with it. They don't want to listen to him. They don't want to listen to the good news of Jesus. They have no intention of following him. And the nation of Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem, burns the temple, and takes them into captivity. But Isaiah doesn't end that way. Isaiah says there's a bigger picture going on. The opportunity to come back to Jesus is still available. The judgment is not comprehensive. With God, you can always come back. And this parable is spoken to a group of people asking, will you come back to Jesus? It starts with four types of soil. Then we talk about the purpose of the parables. Now, thankfully, he's kind enough to interpret it. He says, here, there's four types of hearts picking up in verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. They have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. And as for what falls among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, when they hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The parable gives us one main character, the sower, and two main objects, the seed and the soil. Right away in verse 11, he says, here's what the seed is. The seed is the word of God. It's the good news of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And this is what Jesus has come and say and do. The sower is primarily Jesus himself. Jesus is the word of God. I love how the gospel of John starts this in, in his opening chapter. He says in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. There's a secondary level as well, and that's all of us. It's not just preachers on Sunday morning. It's not whoever's teaching in kids' church. It's not just small group leaders. All of us are sowers of this seed. The soil, as you've probably picked up by now, is the condition of the human heart. And you might notice that each of the soils become more and more and more receptive to God. It's to these soils and the condition of the human heart that Jesus now puts his attention. So will we. What do you do with a hard heart? How many of us at school or at work are talking a little bit about Jesus and our coworker, our classmates go, not interested? How many of us gather together at a family gathering, have people into our home, and we want to talk a little bit about church and just share how Jesus is transforming our lives and our family members say, I don't want to hear any of that. How many of us invite friends to Alpha 
to small group, to church, to a special event, and they just sit there and they have no interest at all in what's going on. I uh, was praying about who to invite to Alpha, and one of my good friends came to mind. We're not acquaintances, we're really tight. And so I thought, oh, this is perfect. Alpha is going to be 100% online. He can do this from his home. He can do it from the comfort of his living room. We're good buddies. He knows I'm a Christian. So I invite him to Alpha, and he goes, not interested. But last fall, I invited four people. All of them said yes. We don't know how people are going to respond. The shallow heart. I love what Jesus says in verse 13. When they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. My friends, I love studying and teaching the Word of God. I hope that it's enough that keeps you interested as well. And there's a couple questions that I ask, among many others, every time I preach. And the first is this, how will this bring glory to God? How does this point to His majesty, His glory, His greatness, His power? And I get to be this tour guide, whether it's a safari or going around downtown New York to say, look at this, look at that. Isn't this fascinating? The second question is this, how is this going to make disciples? Why do you, sitting in these pews, why do you, sitting at home, want to hear this word? When life gets hard, when things get difficult, how are you going to respond? The other part of that is I work hard at the Jesus part of the message. Just talking about what Jesus is teaching isn't talking about Jesus. But do we capture this awe, this wonder of how great the Son of God is? When troubles and difficulties come, will our hearts be deep, deep enough to withstand the blow? Not sure if you've been paying much attention to what's taking place in Ukraine. Thank you, Joel, if you're in the room for praying for it earlier. But this past week, I've been so incredibly impressed with President Zelensky. And here's a man who's standing up and he's leading the nation of Ukraine in what must be an incredibly difficult time. And the Americans reached out to him, not sure if you saw this quote, and they said, President Zelensky, we can come in and rescue us. And his response, I need ammo, not a ride. And he's leading and he's saying, we are not going to be pushed around. We are digging deep. We care deeply what's going on. And I am not going to bail on my country during a time of hardship. Friends, how deep is the soil? When difficulties come, how deep is that soil when a loved one passes away? When you're sick and you're thinking, I'm too young to have this illness. When financial struggles hit, how deep is that soil? Then we have the distracted heart. Uh, I grew up in the 80s. Uh, I had three channels on my TV, and I got my first Nintendo when I was 12 years old, and it's one of the greatest stories in my history. Think about now. I have three streaming services, and who knows how many channels I have, and video games, and you can just hop online, and you can play for hours on anything you want. There's YouTube, there's the internet, there's countless devices that are totally free to use, and that's just for entertainment. What other distractions do we have from having to work hard, family commitments, hobbies, things to be involved with around our community, serving our neighbors in different ways, and we think there's so many distractions going on. 
And the distracted heart hears the good news of Jesus, believes the good news of Jesus, but the cares of this world become too much. I think regularly of a couple verses later on in the book of Proverbs, it's chapter 30, verses eight and nine. Keep falsehood and lies far from me, says the author. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Why? Because I might have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I might become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. We are some of the richest people in the history of the world. Are our distractions keeping us from God? Finally, we have the receptive heart. We hear the word of God and find ourselves captivated by it. And somebody loved us enough to, said, to, to say, do you, we recognize all of us in this room have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That we've said something with our mouths that have hurt people or hurt others. That we've looked at things or people and lusted over them and wanted them for ourselves. That we've acted selfishly and put ourselves before others. All of us have sinned and fallen short. But rather than pushing God away and staying that way, God says, but I'm going to send my one and only son on a rescue mission, and he's going to pursue you. The son of God takes on flesh and walks among us and lives a holy and perfect life for the entirety of his time here on earth. He climbs onto a cross, sacrifices his body, dies for our sins, and raises from the dead three days later. This is the foundation of what we believe. But the good news of the gospel is even more than that. We've been talking about how it's a holistic gospel. Not only does God care about our soul, he cares about our bodies, he cares about our relationships, he cares about our emotions, and God wants us to understand, you recognize how beautiful the gospel is. Now maybe you've heard me talk for the last few minutes and you said, Dave, did you really stay up till 1 a.m. on Tuesday? Because this seems pretty straightforward. Here's what I couldn't figure out. What is the meaning of this passage? And here's what I came to realize. Same parable, different emphases. This is one of very few parables that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's only a couple that are in all three gospels. And I kept thinking, why are they in three different gospels in three totally different ways? I'm going to go through this really quick. You can always hop online if you want to write down what is on the screen behind me. But here's the gospel of Matthew written for a Jewish audience, and it's about expanding the kingdom. Matthew is 28 chapters long. In the 13th chapter, he tells about the parable of the sower. He waits because he knows for the Jews, I'm going to open the doors to the Gentiles. Probably not going to like that a whole lot. The gospel of Matthew is a little bit different. It's written for disciple-making. It's preparing the kingdom of God. And he tells this parable in the fourth chapter. It's all about spreading seeds. Luke, on the other hand, is written primarily for a Gentile audience with a major theme of accessing the gospel. He waits right here until chapter 8. Why is that important? I found this fascinating. Same parable, different emphases. Matthew is all about an unexpected harvest. The Jews didn't realize this is for Gentiles. A Gentile is anybody who's not a Jew as well. Mark is all about planting seeds. This is about discipleship. The emphasis is really on the sower. That's Jesus and us planting seeds. But Luke is different. I've talked about a couple of things regularly in this series. Luke is all about the upside-down kingdom. 
Are you going to accept this good news or are you going to reject this news? And it only gets better. Earlier on, I mentioned that Jesus' quote is from Isaiah chapter six. And yeah, Isaiah is about Isaiah sharing this good news and people not responding. But later on in Isaiah, in chapter 55, we read this, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for what I sent it. It's good news because we recognize that it impacts everybody wherever our hearts are. How do I know? Because it says it right here in chapter 8. I think this is fascinating. Look at verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Okay, sure, big deal. And some women had been called, and had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And then he lists only three. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. That's interesting. I wonder if that would have been hard soil, where the devil comes and snatches it away. And then Jesus heals her of her demonic possession. She opens up and starts following him. Let's see what else he says. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. So she's rich, like filthy rich. And she's hanging out in the palace of the king. Her husband manages everything. I wonder if there might be a few distractions. And she comes and she believes in Jesus. And then Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. And I wonder if Susanna, like so many of us, had a little bit shallow soil and heard it for the first time and thought, maybe this is true, but maybe it's even deeper. All three of these women and many others, but he chooses to only list three, are following Jesus. They're cultivating their hearts to follow him more and more. So what does it mean if we are going to follow Jesus to have hearts that are cultivated to follow him? Earlier on in the service, during the announcements, David talked about how it's this time of Lent, a time over the next six weeks that it's 40 days of preparation. It's in reference to Jesus spending 40 days out in the desert, being tempted by the devil, and during this time, he fasted and he came back, and that's when his ministry began. And for us in the church, it's a reminder that there's 40 days from now until Easter, 40 days to prepare ourselves, to prepare our hearts for what God is doing. And maybe you hear about Lent and you think, isn't that something Catholics do? Or maybe our friends at a Lutheran church or an Anglican church. But there's this growing sentiment, even among the evangelical tradition, that says we need to lean into what's taking place. We need to recognize that God is pursuing our hearts, cultivating our hearts, wanting us to accept and believe this good news so that when trials and difficulties come, we have good, solid roots. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to be focusing on different areas of fasting. We're going to talk about food, yes, but we're also going to talk about social media, complaining, TV, and others besides. And when we were talking about this in worship planning, worship planning was me, um, Pastor Joel, Colton, Nathan, and David. We were talking about if we're actually going to do this, will the five of us actually do this? 
Because if we're not going to, we can't ask the church family. And the five of us are leaning in and we're saying, yeah, let's prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for what God has done for us. And we're asking, will you join us? And if you're wondering, well, how does fasting from, from food or from social media or from television, how is that going to help me draw closer to God? It works like this. This first week, we're going to ask that you fast from junk food. No chocolate, no ice cream, no chips, whatever you enjoy eating. Pardon, I shouldn't say it like that. Any of the junk food you enjoy eating. You're still allowed steak and potatoes. Let's not get crazy. And it's a reminder that every time we have that craving for that delicious caramel, every time we want to grab a, a, grab a bag of potato chips, every time we want to have ice cream as a snack while we watch our favorite show at night, that we're going to say, not this week. Because Jesus sacrificed everything for us. And as we prepare our hearts and get ready for Easter, what is it that we can do to get, be ready and be reminded of the greatest sacrifice of all time? that God sent his one and only son to die for us, that Jesus Christ in obedience to the Father said, I'm gonna climb on that cross. And the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to come into the life of everybody who believes in me. That's a game changer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this well-known parable. Thank you that Luke, Matthew, and Mark all use it in different ways. And it's a reminder to us how wonderful and rich and deep your scriptures are. God, we ask forgiveness. We ask forgiveness for when we have had hard hearts and have turned away from you. We ask forgiveness for we have had shallow hearts and things that shouldn't have have turned us away from you. God, we ask forgiveness for when thorns have come up and we've been too distracted to focus on you. And God, we pray that by the power of your spirit working inside of us, that we would respond to the good news of the gospel, that we would be deep and rich in the good news of Jesus, and we would share this news with others, that the kingdom of God would grow wherever you take us as ambassadors of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.